So there's a, a book, and the title of the book is very simply, four letters, with. And it's written by a guy named Sky Jathani. And he wrote about four ways that people primarily interact with God. And I want to explain these four ways to you. And I want you to ask yourself, um, which one of these best describes how you relate to God and how you think God wants himself to relate to you? Here we go. Number one, life under God. These people are generally known as religious. And here's what he says. They see God in simple cause and effect terms. We obey his commands and he blesses our lives, our families, and our nation. Uh, This is the idea that I work to earn God's approval. I accrue good works to do different religious activities. And the more I do them, then God is pleased with me. I live in the world primarily under God trying to make him happy. So today, are you primarily simply just trying to make God happy? Well, I think Sky and myself and the Bible would um, encourage something even better than living just to make God happy is the primary way you relate to him. I don't know about you, but I do not want my wife every day. Maybe I do, actually. I might take this back in a moment. Um, But I do not want my wife saying, are you happy today? Are you happy with me today? Are you happy with me today? And her primary posture is just trying to make me happy. Number two. Life over God. These are what we would call spiritual people or moralistic people. And he says this, God is abandoned in favor of a proven formula and controllable outcomes. Uh, These are people who want to kind of put God aside and they love to take maybe from different religions and different ideas and they figure out what works, what's pragmatic, and they live life over God. They look at God and they say, I'll use this, I'll use this, I'll leave this behind. I'm not really interested in, in the rest. And some of you are, would consider yourselves moral, spiritual people. And oftentimes that means you're a cherry picker. You pick from here, you pick from here, and you pick from here. The third one, life from God. These are what we call consumers. He says this, people in this category want God's blessings, but they are not particularly interested in God himself. In this category, we come and say, what can I get from God, from you? I want this, I want this. 99% of our prayers are, I need this. It's like he's Santa Claus or a genie in a bottle, and we constantly wish and want. But here's the deal. Here's how you know that you are a consumer who lives life from God, because as soon as God doesn't perform for you, what do you do? You get angry. How could God? If God loved me, he would. This is the American syndrome. We are consumers and we're tempted to look at God primarily for what he can give to us. Life from God. And then finally, number four. And honestly, I think this probably describes my personality, which is, again, not a good thing. And it describes many of you that I know. You'd be the zealots who live life for God, right? And uh, he says this, this, the most significant life, Is the life expended accomplishing great things in God's service? I'm going to do more, do more, do more. God, look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've done for you. And primarily, we live our life. We wake up in the morning and we say, God, look what I did for you. God, look what I did for you. God, look what I did for you. Can you believe how much I do for God? And we compare ourselves to other people who do, quote, less for God. And we think we're better and God likes us more. And our relationship with God is closer because I do more for God than maybe other people do. But none of these capture the dominant posture that God takes in relating to us. None of these. These all fall massively short as the primary posture by which God would relate to us or we should relate to God. And here, I'll give you the answer very simply. It's in the title of the book. That God, before he wants something 
from you wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Listen to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. This is from our theme verse in Christmas. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God, say it with me, with us. Where does God want to be? With us. Now, um, this is kind of an elusive word, okay? So you can be with somebody, but not be with somebody. You know what I'm saying? So here's my question. Check out this picture, and I want you to answer this. Are they with each other? I mean, some of you are actually in proximity. They are very near to each other, right? Some of you are thinking that, right? But the word has more dimensions than that. It's not just about proximity. Now, here's, here's, here's another one for you. Are they with each other? This looks like some of you right now, actually. You're all like double-checking how you're sitting next to your spouse, right? Um, are they with each other? Well, yes, in proximity, but not in intimacy. And so what we're going to watch this morning, we're going to take a little journey through scripture, and we're going to watch as God pursues, takes the initiative with humanity, and he draws closer, we'll call it to withness. You like that word? Withness to us in both proximity and intimacy. And we're going to culminate, and if you really want to open up your Bibles so you can feel like we're going to land in a place, go to Revelation 21, about two-thirds of the way through the service, we're going to land in Revelation chapter um, 21. But here's what I want you to catch. It is in our wiring, in our souls, in our DNA to want withness with God. Some of you maybe don't understand that as much as um, I want you to or you want to. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I'm going to find this in my notes because I lost my spot here. Um, God has made us to desire witness with those who bear our image. So God has made us in whose image and likeness? You can say in his own, right? He has made us in his image and likeness. And you and me are created to want witness with those who are made in our image and likeness. Those would be our children. Now, those of you who have never had kids, um, you may not experience this fully, but it's not that mysterious. That there's something inside of a mom and dad that before they want a kid just to be obedient and just to be good and do whatever they say, they want relationship with their kid. This very principle is woven into our DNA so that as, as we experience life, we get just a glimpse of how God relates to each of us. And what happens in the soul of a mom or a dad whose kids are rebellious and reject them and reject their relationship and reject their friendship? What happens in the heart of a mom or dad? It's grief, right? For some of you, um, Christmas is a really busy time. You're running, you're running, you're running, you're running, you're running. And I want to just propose something to you. That before God wants you to do things for him, he wants you to be with him. That before God wants you to go crazy and just do a million things for him and do all this and do, 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 do. There's a lot of do-dos in there. Some kids are going to be laughing as they hear this. But uh, before God wants you to do, he wants you to be with him. Does this remind you of someone like, oh, Mary and Martha? Remember when Jesus told that story? And Martha, Martha, Martha. Martha's just running around and she's serving. And Mary, what is she doing? She's with him. And Jesus is clear. Martha, uh, Mary's actually onto something. 
That there is something infinitely better than just living for God and being a zealot. In fact, that forness should be the overflow of our withness with him. That because I am with him, now therefore I'm energized to do things for him. But if we do things for him and we don't have intimacy or nearness or proximity with him, we're missing the whole point. The whole point. And so every mom and dad, I think intuitively you understand this. And so we're going to start and we're going to look in your notes and look at number one in your notes. You can pull those out. And we're going to look at what it means that God wants to be with us. We're going to start in the garden where God was fully with Adam and Eve. Remember last week we talked about how this is Jesus. When the God takes form as a man, it's the person of Jesus. And so Jesus is in the garden. And in Genesis 3.8, we get a glimpse before um, the fall what happened. And it says this, they heard the sound of the Lord. God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's just another day in the garden. And where was God? With his children. Walking. Now, I I don't know what this was like. Here's what I do know, right? When you think of Jesus walking in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve, get out of your brains this idea that he had a robe and was super stoic and could never laugh at anything. In God's presence, in Jesus' presence, is fullness of joy. So I have a hunch that the community that Jesus and Adam and Eve in the garden, as Jesus walked with them in the cool of the day, was beautiful, was compelling, was more engaging than anything you can imagine. It was the best of times. In fact, Eden literally means delight. So this was the garden of delight where everything was as it should be. And this is what God wanted. And we're going to watch this theme evolve through scripture. But this is the ideal. This is when men and women are at our best. This is when we are our godliest. When we are with God, not just in proximity, but in intimacy. Then sin happened. And everything was obliterated. I mean, God told them, if you eat from this tree, you're dead. You're going to be gone. And what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Not only were they cursed, but he kicked them completely out of his presence. 100%. No longer was God with mankind in in that way. No longer was he walking with them in the cool of the day. And something terrible happens. And I want you to pay very close attention to what happens. Because when mankind gets distance from God, we descend into darkness. We become our worst selves the farther and farther and farther away we get from God. It's why we look at Christians and say, pursue intimacy, relational nearness with God. Because the farther you get away from that intimacy, usually the darker our lives become. So Genesis chapter 2, they are walking with God and it is beautiful. Genesis chapter 3, sin comes and they are kicked out of the garden. Genesis chapter 4, what happens? Murder. Genesis chapter 5, it's just genealogies. There's no narrative there. The next story happens in Genesis 6. And I want to read to you what the Bible says what happened. This is what happens as God pulls away from humanity. He leaves us to our own. This is life apart from God without God's intervention. The Lord saw... Genesis 6, 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Let me read that again. Soak that in. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Why did it grieve God so intensely? Because we are his kids, made in his image and likeness. And if you've experienced a child who has rebelled, you will begin to understand a small percentage of the pain and grief that God experiences when his children rebel against him. Later in verse 11, it says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We go back to the garden account in Genesis 3, 8. Remember what it said? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool of the day. Here's what actually happened right before that. They sinned, and here's what their sin caused. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hid themselves. And so here's the DNA of sin. The DNA of sin corrupts us and pushes us farther and farther away from God. In fact, God pushes us away from him at this point and says there's a gap, it's, there's a problem, it's called sin. It is creating a gap between you and me and, and this is a huge issue. So not only does God kick Adam and Eve out, Adam and Eve are hiding and running away from the presence of God and this is what happens in this moment while we run and God holds back, we descend into darkness and become our absolute worst selves. We become our worst selves, and it is a terrifying and sad picture to watch many of us know what our lives were like before God reached out his hand to us and we accepted the call to trust in Jesus Christ. Our lives were moving away from him, and it was a descent into moral and spiritual darkness. And that's the way God has wired it. When you leave him, when you walk away from being with him, we become our worst possible selves. Thankfully, God did not just leave it there. Amen? God relentlessly pursued humanity because he loves us. And God, through the nation of Israel, I think he did something really interesting, and this is the second point in your notes, is that he had the people build tabernacles, and that he was going to be with them in these things that are literally, it's just a tent, but actually the word tabernacle um, can mean any kind of temporary or permanent um, dwelling place where deity is worshipped. And so he had uh, God's people build these tabernacles, and God had them build it, and then God stayed in the midst of his people. And so God was not just going to let his people go, but he wasn't just going to turn his back and walk away and somehow we live in some deistic agnostic world. We, we know God made something, but we don't know much about him. No, God is constantly engaging with his people, invading creation, revealing himself, and he makes these tabernacles and these temples. And I want you to listen to what God says over and over and over again. And this is what he wants. And this is where this comes together here. So Exodus 25, 8. And he says this, let them make a sanctuary or a tabernacle is what he's talking about, that I may dwell in their midst. Where does God want to live? With us. With us. In the midst of his people. Later in Exodus 29 verse 45 it says this, I will dwell or live among the people of Israel and I will be their God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now why did he bring them out of the land of Egypt? Here's what he says. That I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Where does God want to dwell? With us. 
Just keeps going. Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. This phrase is repeated over and over and over and over again from the Old Testament to the New Testament because God does not want anyone to ever forget the primary posture that God has toward us. The primary thing he wants for us is withness with him. Because when we are with him, we become the people that God has made us to be. He has put it inside of our hearts that we want to be reconciled back to him. We come alive when we are in nearness or withness with him. I had to actually leave out so many passages of scripture that talk about this because it is such a dominant theme in the Bible. In the book of Ezekiel, they're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And here's what God says. I will set them in their land and I will multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And I'm so glad that God didn't just uh, stay in a tent or in a tabernacle or in a temple. But the next tabernacle is the one of flesh. And this is the one we celebrate at Christmas where God becomes flesh. The word is incarnate or incarnation where God takes on human flesh. And I want to read to you John 1.14. And we're watching God get nearer and nearer and closer and closer. And he reveals more and more of himself with every single step in, in history. God is drawing closer and closer. And here's what John 1.14 says. And the word became flesh. Pop quiz, Village Church, who is the word? Jesus. Good. That's, yeah. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This literally means tabernacled or he pitched his tent in our midst. And the God who is always so far away, so distant, so hard to understand, so terrifying, now God dwells in the flesh, in the form of a baby, in the incarnation. I mean, this is a mind-blowing concept, but here's what it says. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Go back in time with me. Remember Moses? Remember that guy? Ever heard of him? He says to God, I want to see your glory. God laughs hysterically in heaven and says, I would kill you. Literally, if you saw my face, you would die. And he says, I just want to see your glory. And so the Lord says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pass by you, but I'm going to cover with my hand. I'm going to cover your face so you can't see me. And as I pass by, I'll remove my hand. You'll see my back. And that's all I can let you see. And I will um, say my name as I pass by you. And Moses is so pumped up. And then this event happens. And he goes back to the people of Israel. And you know what happened? His face is glowing. (laughs) The people are scared to death of him. So he has to put a veil on every single time he's around the people. And he doesn't take the veil off until he goes back into the tent, into that tabernacle. And then he talks to God, takes the veil off, glows some more, right? It's like radioactive Moses, right? Imagine, right? Moses is reading this now. And he, he reads this. We have seen God's glory? Glory is of the only son from the father and it's bound up in a baby? Are you kidding me? How did everyone not get obliterated the second it came out? How did Mary not die with him in the womb? I mean, was she glowing for the whole nine months? I don't know. But, but like, you get this idea that, wow, like after the fall and before the incarnation, God was always 
terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And now God is drawing nearer and nearer and revealing himself more and more. But he's not done. The incarnation is not the culmination of God's revelation of himself. He keeps going. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Now we have new tabernacles. They're human tabernacles. It's the church. It's people. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And God's spirit dwells in you? And now, for the last 2,000 years in this church age, we have proximity and intimacy with God on levels that no one in history has previously had. God is drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. Beville's church, is he done? No, because I'll tell you, I've been with many a godly uh, old man or woman who's walked with the Lord for years and decades. And they're still not content yet. They still want more. There's like this longing. As long as we are on this side of eternity, like we have not yet to experience the fullness of who God is. I mean, yes, God dwells in us, but there, are, there is a closer sense of proximity and intimacy that we can have with God. Now you can look down at your Bibles. Revelation 21. And we're going to start in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is, say it with me, with man. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, this articulation, this statement, I will be their God, they will be my people, I will dwell with them, goes all the way back, and it's a rearticulation of what God intended in the garden. And so in the garden, you see this God with man, man with God, no proving anything. They're in peace, they're in unity. God has revealed himself, and sin has caused this distance. And for the rest of history, God is drawing closer and closer and revealing more and more and more of himself. And all of the opposite obstacles that stand between us and God. He's getting rid of them one at a time. How could God, holy, righteous, perfect, dwell in a sinner like you and me? Not until our sins are paid for. So the Holy Spirit of God does not take residence up in the people of God until our sins are fully addressed. And so with every single bit of nearness that he takes closer, he resolves all of the obstacles that stand between us and the, and the optimal intimacy and nearness and proximity to him. But we're not done yet. And so we look forward. We look forward to this day where there will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. All of the old stuff, the junk, the sin, the hurt, the pain, that's done. And we will recreate but better the garden experience with God, without sin, fully in his presence, fully human, fully alive, fully experiencing the joy and the life that is with God. He goes on, after he has repeated this promise and says the fulfillment of this is coming, long for this. In verse 4 it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can somebody give me an amen on that? And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I don't know about you, but I'm not quite there. 
I mean, God is in me. I am with him and he is with me, but this is, it's, it's not ideal yet. There, there's a long way to go. And somehow when we're there and he is in our midst and we can talk to him and hug him and shake his hand uh, and we can have this proximity and this intimacy that makes us come fully alive, then we will experience statements like this. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. David says, Psalm 8410, one day in your courts, one day in your presence is better than a thousand elsewhere. Revelation 21.5, he goes on, he says this. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What I'm telling you, take it to the bank. This is absolutely going to come to pass. I came the first time, I did what I said I was going to do. I came, I'm going to come the second time, and I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. Here's what he says in verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, meaning I am eternally preexistent. I am the omega. I will live forever and ever and can never be stopped. The beginning and the end. Now, here's the question for you. Are you thirsty? Not for water. Don't be silly. Are you thirsty? Is there a piece of you that says, I want to know God more? I want to experience God more. Are you thirsty? Do you want a relationship with God? Do you want to know that your sins are forgiven? Do you want to know that nothing stands between you and God and that he is with you and you are with him? Here's what he says. To the thirsty, to those who are longing for me, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. What does it cost you to get the water of life that quenches every thirst for God? Nothing. Nothing. It is without price. He says a couple of verses later, it is without payment. And here's what God wants you to get. I, I get the world we live in. I get that every religion and even some versions of Christianity tell you, be good and God will save you. And if you're not good enough, well, then there are other ways to work off your bad behavior. I get we live in a world that says, do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? I get that that is the religious climate of much of America. It is not the religious climate of the Bible or of God. And so God's uh, communication is actually very different. Uh, it's a terrible dad. It's a terrible father who says, perform for me, and then I'll love you. But God says, no, 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 no. I already love you. That's not at stake. What's at stake is your sin. And it's created a distance between us. But I've gotten rid of all the obstacles. So all you need to do, it's very simple. Trust me. Tell me you're sorry. Come back to me. Trust me. And, and if you'll do that, we're good. I'll forgive you once and for all. I'll give you my spirit. I will be with you. I will dwell in you. Like this thing, we can do this. The only thing standing between you and me is your pride and your unwillingness to say, I trust you. I receive what you've given to me. That's it. And I love that because God isn't out here playing games. Were you good enough? Did you go to church enough? Let me see your, uh, your uh, checkbook. How much did you tithe this month? Trust me, you do not have enough good works, money, or righteousness to make God like you more at all. And so he just looks at us and says, I already love you. My love for you doesn't go up or down based on what you do or don't do. I love you. I like you. I want to be in a relationship with you. Will you come back to me and trust me? That's the question. 
And he says it's without payment. Does that mean it was cheap? No. It was infinitely expensive. It cost God, his son, Jesus, had to experience the full weight of God's anger and wrath at humanity's sin on himself. God, somehow figure this, sinless, flawless, beautiful, had to endure his creation executing him. This was incredibly costly. But you don't get any of the payment. You don't, you don't, not one ounce. And I love this. So the God just looks at you and he says, I want to be with you. And you know what? Right now, my spirit, if you trust in me, will dwell in you. And that's just a foretaste. Because the day is coming. I'm coming back. There's another advent, arriving, emergence of my son. I'm coming back. And when I do, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And in my presence, I will be with my people. I will be their God. They will be my people. There will be fullness of joy. There will be pleasures forevermore. Because where I am is joy and life and peace and happiness and rest. And he looks at you and says, it's free. I love you, it costs you nothing, and you get everything. In my own head, it takes a fool to say no. It takes a fool. And when God makes it so easy, and we make it so difficult. Now, there's some of you here who, and I, I want to empathize with one major group of you. And that is those of you who want to believe, but you struggle to believe. And so you genuinely, in good conscience, cannot say, I trust in you because you don't even know if you believe. And I want to honor your struggle. And I want to say to you, keep struggling. Keep wrestling. And I want to tell you something that has helped me over and over and over again. God does not play games. He is not waiting for you to say the right thing or do the right thing so that then he'll show himself to you. Like, that's not the way God works. Here's a little one-liner somebody told me a long time ago that has um, caused much of my heartache to go away. said, anybody who truly would trust in Christ if he revealed himself, he'll reveal himself to them. The problem, the problem here uh, for most people is that if God did truly reveal himself, most people actually wouldn't respond and submit to him. So I want to make a promise to you. If you, or if God, were to truly reveal himself to you, and you were to respond with worship and trust, he would do it every time. And so I would go back to you and I would say, ask God and say, Lord Jesus, if you're there, <laughs> fingers crossed, I want to believe in you. I, want to, I would like to think that if you revealed yourself to me, I would truly actually follow you and worship you. So would you change my heart? Would you reveal yourself to me? Would you change me if there's any problem in me, if there's anything in me that would hold me back from worshiping you? Would you change that in me? Would you reveal yourself to me? Could I please be a son or daughter? I just don't believe God will play games with you if you're serious and genuine. The problem is most people are consumers. They want to come to God because of what God will do for them, not for God himself. That's why God doesn't reveal himself to most people, I think. Because they're not genuine. God's not a genie. He's a father. God is not Walmart where you can go get what you want and then complain at customer service when you don't. He's your dad who wants relationship with you and who loves you. And so this Christmas, my prayer for us is that this would not be necessarily increased busyness, busyness, do, 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 do. Um, but this Christmas would be one where we just slow down in our souls a little bit and we enjoy the fact that God wants to be with us. So rather than just get up in the morning and go do your thing, open up the word of God and don't just gloss over it, savor it. Set some time aside by yourself and just pray. And talk to God. And don't be in a rush. Don't set a time limit on it. Just talk to him. Be 
with him. Slow down. When you wake up on Christmas morning, just make it about Jesus. Even though there's a billion presents, somehow find a way to make this about Jesus. Be with him. He's with you. And if you've never trusted in Christ and you're even interested or curious, come talk to myself, anyone on stage. We would love to talk with you and tell you more about what that means. So I want to invite the band to come up and we're going to close. And I think one of the most appropriate ways possible, we're going to pray and we are going to worship. So let's pray together. God, I thank you that there literally is no obstacle between us and you except for our own pride, our own unwillingness to give ourselves to you. And God, for some of us, we're unwilling because we just don't know if we can believe. And I, I pray very simply um, that you would, with clarity, reveal the truth of who you are. And God, if there is anyone here who is just a consumer, and even if you did reveal yourself, wouldn't take you seriously, God, would you change their heart? Because there's too much at stake. We confess that every one of us, we are sinners. We are consumers more than we would ever like to admit. But God, this Christmas, we want to be with you. We want to enjoy you. And I also want to look forward to your second advent, where you make everything right, where you wipe away every tear, where you recreate this entire world without sin, without, without flaw. And we can enjoy you and be with you in ways that we can't even honestly imagine right now. But between that day and this day, would you help us to draw near to you, not just in proximity, but in intimacy. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen.